This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. You can experience a poem as a phenomena on Earth the way that you might experience the ocean itself walking on the beach. Do you understand the ocean? I don't, but I sure like it. I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm going to be talking with Mary Rufel. Mary Rufel is the author of many books, most recently the poetry collection Dunce, published in 2019, and My Private Property, a book of prose pieces published in 2016. She lives in Bennington, Vermont, where I reached her by phone. Hi Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hi Emily. Could I ask you to kick us off by reading, first of all, Lament and Conflict? I'd be honoured to do that. I'm speaking to you from my home in Vermont in the United States. I don't understand how this works. It seems like a miracle that I'm talking to London. I'm not sure I want to know how it works, but I don't even know if my voice is going under the ocean or through the air. It's me. Okay. So I'm going to read my poem, Lament. Lament. This is how I usually start, simply tinted with a margin, sometimes the subject in the center. I don't think I've ever actually stepped foot in the world, and yet I feel I've approached it year after year in different difficult ways. From crawling across the linoleum to climbing a loquat tree, only to hear the sound of adults speaking below me in a language I couldn't quite catch. Once on a ladder when ice dams threatened my house, I had a hatchet in my hand and I used it. Useless. Hopeless in the hospital, unable to stand the little checks by flashlight at night. And the costumes at Halloween. Mary Shelley in mourning, but nobody caught on. Nor did I, as the years turned into ever longer days, and all my approaches felt like swimming across a claret-colored lake so wide, I could picture in my mind every pair of shoes I've ever worn. Do you want to hear them? And writing poems. That was a wash. How do I lament it forth, this feeling of trying? And the next piece is called Conflict, and it's written in prose with a right flush margin. It's not lineated. Conflict. April 4th. I was in the woods today, some beer cans, yes, but hundreds of purple scylla and a dozen white violets. Then I saw a hypodermic needle, a waterlogged copy of Sarah, the biography of Sarah Palin. Who is Sarah? said the Scylla. I told them she lived far away and was long ago. They relaxed and said they would not read it. But the white violets felt otherwise. They said they were interested in history, in the past. Why else would they keep coming back? And that they would definitely read it and so clustered about. Thus, the world goes on, torn between those who care and those who don't. Should I have, before I read that last piece, maybe 
told listeners, Scylla is a tiny purple flower that grows everywhere and is one of the first flowers to come up in the spring. Do you have Scylla in England? You must. I think so, yeah. I did actually look the flower up myself and recognised it, so I'm sure we do. I'm not very good on horticulture, but good to have that mentioned. I love the way that you were saying that the fact that we're even talking at all is kind of a miracle, which it sort of is, and that you don't want to know how it's happening, which makes me think a bit about some of the themes of your work, this idea of mystery and secrets and the sort of joy of that. In this poem Lament, you've got the lines, the sounds of adults speaking below me in a language I couldn't quite catch, which made me think of your lecture on secrets, um, especially the passage in which you talk about the unborn child listening to adults speaking outside the womb without being able to understand what they're saying. As I understand it in the essay and in your poems in general, there's this sort of idea of that not understanding things can be a sort of source of joy and that seeking to know things, you say, I would rather wonder than know. You think of the majority of people in the world, I think they think of poems with this great nervousness, this idea that they won't get it. I know, it's so, so sad, but people are afraid of poetry because everything you're talking about is how I feel about poetry. When I was young, I didn't understand the poems that I read and fell in love with. The first poems I fell in love with went right over my head, but I loved them. They gave me a deep sense of being. And even if I wasn't conscious of it at a younger age, through the years, I've asked people, why don't you like poetry? Why don't you read it? Why do you turn away from it? And the answer is always, I don't understand it. What truly underlines that is, I don't understand it. The invisible sentence is, it makes me feel dumb. And I have a lot of poems about the joy of being dumb. I mean, my latest book is called Dunce. So they don't understand it. And it's not to be understood. Obviously, there are poems we read that we understand. I'm not denying that. But there are a, just as many poems that cannot be understood in the traditional sense of that word. They can't yeah. be paraphrased. They can't be explained. You're not quite sure what happened. If you let that go and you read with your body for pleasure and let the poem wash over you or sink in and experience it as a phenomena, if you can experience a poem as a phenomena on earth, the way that you might experience the ocean itself, walking on the beach. Do you understand the ocean? I don't, but I sure like it. It might be a little scary at first, but really it's a matter of people letting go of this idea that it has to be understood. But you see, part of the problem is the medium. The medium of poetry is language. And we use language every single day to communicate and be understood. And so to think of language as an artistic medium is very, very hard 
They don't expect to understand paint. They can stand in front of paintings. They don't have any problem with paintings. But as soon as the medium is something they use every day, it becomes full of anxiety to think, I don't understand this thing, and I use it every day. To see that poetry is using the medium of language akin to paint is hard, I think, for many. On the other hand, Emily, to be honest, I don't really care that a lot of people don't like poetry. It's a best-kept secret. The loss is theirs. I have better things to do than to spend my life convincing people that poetry is worth their time. I don't know if it's still going on. You have been Poet Laureate of Vermont. Are you still in that post or is it finished now? No, I am in that post. It's a four-year post and I'm entering my second year. Does that involve a certain kind of public role in a way that you might, in a sense, be expected to convince people to like poetry? Oh, yes, but I lucked out because of COVID. (laughs) I had engagements that just all got canceled. I would rather be home than out in the world. And I didn't have to be out in the world because of lockdown. So I understand what you're asking, but I have yet to be in that situation. But I do have a very large laureate project. Do you know about my laureate project? Is this the one where you're posting poems to people? Yes. Without any explanation or understanding, 1,000 people who live in my state, randomly chosen from telephone books, are receiving poems in the mail. They don't know who sent them. They're not my poems. They're poems from all cultures and all times. And my project is to mail 1,000 poems. To date, I have mailed 540. There was an article in the, the local newspaper and local radio, not in my town, but up north, the capital of the state, saying, if you get one, let us know. And no one has responded, which amuses me. <laughs> I think probably 85% of them end up in the trash or being recycled. But I'm quite confident that about 15% of the ones I've sent have reached willing eyes. I love that. I was going to ask you about letters, actually. You'd said somewhere that you believe every poem is a letter, which this project is sort of embodying, I suppose. Since you don't use email, presumably you write quite a lot of letters. And I wondered if that's something that you relate to your poetry practice if or if you see it as completely separate or what you think of a letter as an art form if you read collections of letters i love reading collections of letters i devour them it's my favorite form of literature to write a letter and i do correspond by mail with a great far too many people and my life is becoming too busy to do it it's overwhelming but I love writing letters. I type them on a typewriter, and it's an activity I love. I never thought in my lifetime it would become an activity which is considered obsolete, but it is considered completely obsolete. Most of the people I correspond with are other authors, 
I love letters as well, but since I do use email, I don't write a whole load of them, but I have been privileged to receive mail from you. It's unlike any other form of communication, and it's got this novelty value now because, at least to people who don't exchange letters that much, to actually get a letter in the post is hugely exciting. That was part of the reason I wanted to mail these poems out, just to receive something that was not advertising or a bill. If I'm talking to very young adults, say early 20s, I always say to them, before your grandparents die, send them something in the mail. They will understand. They remember. They'll get it. That's the best thing you can do. Write them a letter and mail it. I have sent emails. I'm capable of sending an email and texting on the phone. But writing a letter is completely different. I am completely relaxed. And I am speaking differently in a letter. In a text, brevity is all. You're trying to be concise and informative. In an email, you're chatting. I'm not really chatting in a letter. I'm speaking. It's different. I'm more relaxed in front of the typewriter than I am in front of the screen. Well, no, it's interesting because, I mean, I was thinking, well, it's the same motion you're typing, but the difference is you don't have the screen in front of you. So there's a more of a kind of space for things to emerge out of the ether. I wanted to ask you also about your writing process, which we're sort of getting a bit towards. Lament opens, this is the way I usually start, simply tinted with a margin. So how do you usually start a poem? I start a poem when there is a line in my head that loops and repeats itself and has a rhythm. It's always mental pressure, a snippet of language, which is moored in my mind and won't go away. Even when I say, go away, go away, I'm too busy. Does that always end up as the opening line or does it depend on the poem? It depends. Most of the time it does, although sometimes the opening line might get cut. That comes much later when I bring my consciousness to the page. But in the beginning, I'm not really conscious. To be honest, I'm an elder. I mean, I'm I'm old, and I don't sit down in front of a blank page anymore. Mm. I used to when I was young. I've written far too many poems. I don't need to write anymore, but I love it and I can't help it. But I only write poems when they come to me. I don't face blank pages. I do with my prose, but never with poetry. Not anymore. Not anymore. But I know many young writers sit down in front of a blank page with an idea. I don't work that way. No, I I don't think I would do that myself unless I, you know, you've got a commission and you have to, but... It's a bit daunting. Because I'm Poet Laureate, I have to write a poem on a specific subject for a specific occasion sponsored by the state. And it absolutely paralyzes me. And I'm capable of doing it. But to be honest, I don't really want to put my name to it because I know the results will not truly be me because I'm trying so hard. Have you written many commission poems in your career? Have you tried to avoid that? I've tried to avoid it. This is the first I can think of. Oh, once for a wedding? A long time ago. So this is the second in my life. 
if I'm asked, I say no, I don't do it. People love it. I'm not one of them. I think and that... yet we need these poems. We need poems for occasions. Even people who do not read or write poetry, they will try to find a poem or request a poem for the occasions of birth, marriage, and death. Because these are major rites of life and to mark the occasion. But there's so many poems out there that you can find one that suits you and your lifestyle. You'd simply need to, to look or to ask somebody else to look. You know, I have been asked, could you suggest some poems to read on this occasion? And they're not poems I've written, but I say, go look at this, go look at that. I read somewhere that you had said that your collected lectures, Madness, Rack and Honey, were written in a sense as a kind of commission, like that you, you had to write lectures for your teaching job. Is that an example of being forced to write something that actually worked out really well? Yeah, I did. I got into them. I had to lecture. And I wasn't willing to just stand up and talk. And I wasn't willing to write about poetry per se. I wanted to choose subjects that mattered to me. And I figured I could go anywhere I wanted so long as I mentioned poetry at least once. I got into what I was doing, but I never would have written them if I didn't have to. Whereas many people love writing essays and lectures because that's what they love doing. I guess I'm eating my own words here because more people read those lectures than read my poems. That's an absolute fact. I know that. I'm aware of that. So who's to say, Emily, maybe I should only work by commission? Is there something about prose that being commissioned or brief to write prose is different to... I mean, this is something you've obviously been asked a million times, what's the difference between poetry and prose? People who write both, obviously we know what the difference is, but we don't quite know what's happening. I can only speak for myself. Writing prose is more nerve-wracking for me because I'm using language to communicate and I am speaking in the medium of public discourse. I'm entering a field in which the reader is completely comfortable. When I write a poem, that's my inner life. And as I've said before, I could care less what you think about my inner life. And if you want to go there, that's wonderful. But if you don't, that's also wonderful. But with prose, I do think of it as entering a field of public discourse. And then I do care. You can talk back to an essay, but how do you talk back to a poem? I have opinions on poems, but they're my own. I read a poem. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. That happens all the time. But I'm completely free in a sense that I'm not when I'm locked into this world of public discourse. But that's that's just me. With the, for example, the prose pieces we have in the issue, Conflict and My Life as a Scholar, do you see those as prose as, as opposed to poetry? 
I actually do because they have a right flush margin. They're written in paragraphs, but they're not essays. I call them prose pieces. They're obviously creative. Perhaps they could exist as poems, but they are different. People call them prose poems. People call them poems. You're publishing them as poems. That's fine with me. I just call them prose pieces. It's my inner ear and its rhythm. I hear something as prose. And most of the time I'm telling a little story, which I very seldom do in a poem. Does a prose piece have sort of line breaks in the way, like a hidden line break, or is is that part of it, that poems have lines? And Yeah, no, to me a poem is delineated and prose is not. I'm antiquated and old-fashioned, and today young people who study theory would have many different answers for you. You can talk endlessly about the difference between prose and poetry, or to me it's music, but there are whole classes that are taught what is a prose poem. And you spend a whole year trying to figure out what a prose poem is, and you don't have a clue at the end. So why bother? (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's very simple. Poems are lineated, and prose is not. But We have prosaic poetry and we have poetic prose. I understand that. Every Uh, great novelist I've ever read, I consider a poet. Everyone that I love or read. Here's the only categories I care about, inner life and outer life. And everything I write is part of my inner life, I suppose. I feel like most great poems are also works of philosophy. And I definitely feel like that about your poems. And I wondered if... You have some sort of like a philosophy of life that underpins your work or if there are philosophers or theorists that you turn to. I was interested in your comments in an interview you gave at the Bergen Literary Festival where you spoke about not being afraid of sadness. I felt like that seemed like quite a sort of Zen Buddhist approach to life, which I've sensed in your work generally. I just wondered if any of those things are consciously at work. I'm not afraid of sadness. As a matter of fact, I'm speaking to you from my study, and on the floor is a huge folder full of pieces of paper because for a long time I've wanted to write an essay about sadness. I simply haven't found the time or space to do it. Okay, my poems come to me. I mean, I don't know where they come from. I cannot tell you where they come from. I think that I am very, very funny. And I think I'm very, very sad. And my poems can be funny and sad at the same time. So there's that. But my poems don't come from a high place or a low place. Even though humor is, let us say, for the sake of art, humor is high and sadness is low, they come from a straight, ordinary, plebeian, mid-line because they come from my domestic life. So they come in the middle of humor and sadness, but coming from boring domesticity, boring everydayness. But it's not boring. That's what's so... I suppose you might think that certain things are boring, but once they appear in your poems, they become joy and life. Well, I wonder what people learned during all these extended lockdowns. If they were fortunate enough not 
to suffer because mm. pandemics are death and suffering. But if you were protected from that and you were in lockdown, did you find living in your apartment or your, your flat or your home, did you come to enjoy that and to see it in a new way or were you completely bored all the time? I don't, I don't know who you are, listener, but how did you feel about that? Were there newfound joys being at home with your cat or your family, or were you bored and cannot bear life as we know it today? I can't answer that, obviously, for other people, but I miss it. <laughs> I wake up every day saying, I wish we were in lockdown. Yeah. How do we get here? That's what, sort of what I was getting at with my not very well phrased question that your work kind of, there's a spirit of inquiry that is equal across all things. So it's not like if you're writing about something painful or sad that it's, oh God, this is so awful. It's like, oh, what's interesting about this thing that I'm describing? Your work also seems to get quite close to childhood or like a childlike way of looking at the world where there's a sort of free spiritedness about exploring and seeing things as new like you're suggesting we might have had an opportunity to in lockdown i think that has to do with imagination children have phenomenal imaginations and the imagination gets beaten out of you from your first day of school everyone has an imagination but it's like anything they don't use it so it atrophies and that's sad that's sad what was your sort of genesis for becoming a writer at what point did you sort of decide you were going to try and make a career out of it oh I don't think I've decided yet to make a <laughs> career out of it it just kind of happened I did start writing as a young child I was gleefully writing poems when I was seven years old all the other things I wanted to be had to do with the arts. There was a time I thought I was going to be a dancer and a time I thought I was going to be in the theater world and still later a visual artist, a painter. But through each of those phases as I was writing, writing was the one thing that I could always do and take with me wherever I went because it didn't cost anything. Paper and pencil in my day, it's all you needed. I was very poor as a young person and to be a painter, you had to buy paint and canvas, which is more expensive than paper and pencil. And the theater world, it's such a group effort. It takes the work of a lot of people working together. And I've always been a loner. So that didn't work. And the dance was quite simple. I had an accident and hurt my leg and that was that, you know. And I'm also clumsy. <laughs> but it was always towards the arts. Well, that's really interesting that there were all these other alternative... I think a lot of times you hear writers have these other artistic leanings. We're kind of coming towards the end. I've got so many things to ask you, but... I think I'll have to save some of them for another day. Maybe I could ask you to read your other two pieces and then I'll ask one or two final questions. All right. I will read the, the final two pieces that are going 
to be in the magazine. And the first one I will read is My Life as a Scholar, and it again is a prose piece with a right flush margin, written in a paragraph. My Life as a Scholar. My friend the metalsmith told me that the first piece of jewelry she learned to make as an apprentice was a fibula the earliest form of a pin used by the ancient Greeks and Romans to fasten their togas. It is used today on Scottish kilts. In miniature, we call it a safety pin, and until the advent of disposable diapers, it was the ubiquitous diaper pin. I was teaching undergraduates at the time and immediately signed up to teach the Greek tragedies. Oedipus, upon learning that he had gone to bed with his mother, stabbed out his eyes with a diaper pin. That's an absolutely true story. I do have a friend who is a metalsmith. I mean, it's all true. This is a poem, Empathy of Cod. When the astronaut went into space, she had to leave her dog behind. Can we call these birds American if they leave every winter? I have told you everything. How can you leave me? Not a single cold cod in the cold, cold sea has a single ounce of empathy for you or for me. As I was rereading your work in preparation for this, I noticed that there's a preponderance of pins in your poems. There's a diaper pin in My Life as a Scholar, which made me think of a poem from Dunce, Dark Corner. As I, I crimped my fingers to pick up the pin, a poem came to me. And later in Dunce, there's another poem with pins, The Sound of the Rain. Yeah, I've got that written down as well. Is there a relationship between a poem and a pin? I don't know. It, this pin thing in Dunce, in particular, has been pointed out to me you're absolutely right, and I, I have no logical explanation for it. I know that I like small things, like paper clips, but even more than paper clips, I like the shadows of paper clips that are left. If you put a paper clip on some pages and let a lot of time pass, it will leave a rusty shadow. I love that. I cut them out and save them and collect them and use them in various projects. I do associate pins with my mother. I see her with pins in her mouth, sewing, or I see her bending down to the floor to pick up a fallen pin. I don't know. It's just, yeah, I don't know. That's fine. It's good to not know things as you have uh, taught us. It is. I shall wonder about that to answer. I do not know, but I shall wonder about it. I loved an essay of yours that was published in the Siwani Review last year or early this year called Dear Friends. And that was not commissioned. That I wrote of my own free will. You're sort of describing different friendships throughout the piece. And there's a line where you say, I have a friend who has never read a single word I've ever written. I love being with her. I love that because I feel like as writers, we're always asked, obviously, about writing, but we're not writing for a huge proportion of our lives. And a lot of the time, it's wonderful being with people who don't want to talk about writing. So I wanted to end with a question 
that wasn't about writing just to ask what you like to do when you're not writing? When I'm not writing, I like to read. (laughs) I like to read and I like to swim. It's summer now, and in the summer, I swim in a nearby lake, and I live for that. In the winter, there is an indoor swimming pool, but I sort of have to drag myself there because it's very, very cold outside, but I do it because, you know, they say it's good for you and you're supposed to exercise. I love the summer because of the lake. Do you think there's any kind of affinity between writing and swimming? I do kind of lose myself in the water and my mind is free to wander. Oh, that's very interesting that you say that. Okay, there's a poem in your magazine and it's the first poem I read. And in that poem, I will reread those lines. It says, As the years turned into ever longer days and all my approaches felt like swimming across a claret-colored lake so wide I could picture in my mind every pair of shoes I've ever worn. Well, that, it didn't happen in the lake, although the lake is in the poem. But when I'm swimming in the pool and I'm a little bored and I don't want to keep going, my fallback is to picture every pair of shoes in my life that I can remember. And it ended up in this poem. Well, if I you think... start to do that, a lot of time will pass. <laughs> I think that's a good tip for anyone in situations when time needs to pass. Thank you very much for sparing the time to talk to me. It's been a great, great pleasure to mysteriously talk across the Atlantic Ocean. I can't believe it. It sends shivers up my spine, and it sounds like you're in the next town. I'm so old-fashioned. I want to say, goodbye, London. And then I realize that it's not just London because it's the world we live in. It's the global village. (laughs) Thank you so much, Emily, and stay in touch. And um, goodbye, goodbye, listeners. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.